Why don't you go to 2 Samuel chapter 15 this morning. 2 Samuel 15. Brother Harper, thanks. Everything that I have heard this week wasn't just for students, it was for me. And I have been blessed by it and helped by it. Thank you very much. And uh, it is such a blessing when you're praying about needs in your own life and the Lord uses preaching to meet those needs. And, and also to let you know, I'm hearing you, Rich. I'm, I'm hearing what you're praying. And always a joy to me. I had planned, kind of in my mind, okay, what might I preach? I've got four opportunities in chapel. What might I preach this week? And I've been on track until yesterday. But today, originally, I was, I was, I've been working on for weeks a new message uh, from Daniel chapter 3, We Will Not Bow, The Young Men Cast in the Fiery Furnace. I thought after doing Daniel 1, it'd be a great, uh, talking about cancel culture, we will not bow. Oh, I want to preach that message. But uh, I'm not quite ready. I'm not where I want to be with that. And all week, the Lord was kind of burdening me, no, that's not how I want you to end this week. So I've been praying, and I had in mind a message for today, which is the one I'm ending up with, that I thought, I think I should do this. But the one struggle was, Brother Jim, I had preached this at Emmanuel back in 2017. So you're going to hear something some of your Emmanuel people would have heard. And I thought, I don't like doing that, you know. That was only six years ago. His memory goes back six years. So, and then, um, I I had... um, Somebody come to me this week said, you preached that here before. He's got the notes in his Bible. And yeah, I know. I know when I did it. I keep track of that stuff. So I really struggled. Uh, Do I really want to go with something that a few of these people have heard? But I will tell you, the Lord kept impressing my heart. Now, I want you to finish with this particular message. Well, last night when Brother Harper got on David in Psalm 23, he touched on a few things that were really, they jibe with, go along with what I want to give you this morning. So we're in 2 Samuel 15, and you'll see quickly, it is the place at which, uh, which, at which Absalom had rebelled against David. Remember that last night, reference to that? And he is in the midst of a coup d'etat, that is a, an attempt to overthrow the government. And let me give you some context to the message. For years, I hosted a uh, fellowship for pastors in northern Alabama, and it was a preacher's retreat that was really structured around fellowship. I would go to conferences, and I'd see people I hadn't seen in years, and we'd say, hey, we need to catch up. And other than maybe a few minutes at lunch, there was no time because, the, you know, it was just session after session, which was why they did that. But I'm wanting to fellowship with people I haven't seen forever. And I thought, man, someday somebody needs to come up with a thing that's just built on fellowship, and then we have evening services. And so I thought, why don't I do that? So we had a, it was at a little golf retreat in northern Alabama, Quail Creek, outside of Hartzell. And I had two pastor friends in the area, and so it was great. I could park at one, my friend Dave Gamble's church, and Shane Lewis was the other pastor nearby. And I, I got some contacts there. A little golf retreat that had an inn with 15 rooms in it. And um, we'd bring in uh, anywhere from 15 to 20 couples. Um, Terry Snow, the Calvary Quartet, they would come every year to sing for us gratis. They never charged me anything. And I would just bring in different pastors, because I didn't preach. I just organized it. I wanted pastors to minister to pastors. And so we'd have an evening service. And I will tell you, our evening services were pretty Tozer-esque. They might go two hours, you know. And I wasn't the one preaching. But uh, we'd we'd have music and testimonies and all. But the daytime, oh, daytimes were fun. Um, The men would golf till we dropped, and the women would shop till they dropped or whatever. You know, the wives would go do their lady things, coffee shop, shopping, games, whatever, board games. Men, we'd be out there playing golf and whatever. 
And the idea was just to interact, just, hey, what's going on? I'll tell you, I had a few men tell me I was about that close to quitting the ministry until I came to that retreat, and I talked to so-and-so, and it gave me a fresh perspective, and I kept going. Well, in the eight years of doing it, there was one speaker I had twice, and it's a person I'm partial to, his brother Jim Shetler. He had been my pastor at Pensacola, and uh, later on going out to West Coast, and we're close. Um, I went, I'll tell you in this message, I went through a tragedy at our home church, and he had really ministered to me at that time. He was my parents' pastor. His first year as uh, campus church pastor, I was the president of the ministerial class. We got really close. So there's a history there. And I'll never forget this. One time he preached two messages that week. One was from the book of Ruth, which was very impactful. And the other was a narrative message that, how many of you have ever heard Shetler preach? Anybody ever heard? Just to give you a little Jim Shetler, it's like every, everything's a superlative, okay? It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. It was like, I, oh, my word. So there's a crescendo in his preaching, but I will tell you, there's some, there's some good substance. And he preached this one message, and I, I will tell you from a homiletical perspective, it wasn't his most masterful. I mean, there wasn't even an outline to this thing. It was a narrative. It was a biographical study. But I'll tell you what. It made a lasting impression. And if it weren't for his message, I would have never studied the passage of Scripture. Now, I do have an outline, okay? I, I can't help myself without organizing it. But uh, had it not been for Brother Shetler, I wouldn't be preaching what I'm preaching. He said, one night I had a guy to come to me in church, and he, he was a layman. He said, Pastor, you ever study the life of Ahithophel? He said, is he in the Bible? He said, yeah, he's in the Bible. He said, well, then, Steve, I'm sure I have. I've read through the Bible, like, lots and lots of times, but I don't remember. He said, Pastor, you ought to study Ahithophel. He said, so I made note to self, study Ahithophel. He said, well, you know, I'm teaching college classes, and I'm preaching in church, and I've got this whole list of prep stuff I have to do, so I don't really have a whole lot of time to add something else. So a couple weeks later, that guy came and said, so did you study him? Who? Ahithophel, remember, Pastor? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to get to it, Steve. I'll get to it. So he said, one night, I'm at home. My wife's at a ladies' meeting. My kids are at the Christian school activities. I, I've got time. He said, I thought, yeah, Ahithophel. So he said, I pulled out the Strong's Concordance, and I began to trace the name Ahithophel through the Bible. He said, it was unbelievable. I can't believe what I'm learning about this guy. And he said, I'm going to show you, because this is, this is good. This is life transforming. So I've learned. I, I trust the man. So I learned, okay, I'm buckled in. I'm following along this message. And I will tell you what, it was transformative. In fact, I found out later, two of my pastor friends that had come that week, not knowing each other, had said to their wives, you know, I'm going to this retreat, but i got to tell you, when I go home, I plan to tell the church that I'm resigning. I'm done. I'm just running on empty. And each of those men ended up staying in the ministry, and each of them ended up saying, man, I had the best year I ever had after that. And it wasn't like it was just one message, but this, this particular message was really impactful. Now, I have a title for this message, but I don't want to give you the title at the outset. So just draw your line, and I'll give you a title before we're finished, okay? But we are going to trace in Scripture a man named Ahithophel. I want you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 15. And this will be an outline in the way of questions today. We're going to look at who, what, how, and why, okay? <clears throat> We're going to start with who. Number one is who was Ahithophel? Who was Ahithophel? 2 Samuel 15 Look at verse 10, if you would. 
But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then shall you say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called. They went in their simplicity. They knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel. I circled that name in my Bible. That's the key character in this study. Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Okay, I don't have to go into a lot of background with you guys. You're, you're Bible literate. You know the story. But Absalom had been, he felt like he'd been betrayed by his father. You remember the story Amnon, his brother, had fallen lusting for their, his half-sister Tamar. And uh, Amnon's friend said, I'll tell you what to do. Just tell her you're sick and she needs to come make you food and then have your way with her. And, I mean, it's, the Bible didn't gloss over details. He raped his sister. It was horrible. Well, of course, Absalom and Tamar were full-blood brother and sister. Both, both mom and dad were the same. And he was livid. And he couldn't believe that David didn't do anything. Dad didn't do a thing. And so he took matters in his own hand. He conspired to have Amnon killed. And then when that happened, Absalom fled Jerusalem. Time went by. Joab, the king's general, said, Don't you think it's time you bring back your son? So eventually David sent for uh, Absalom, and the Bible says that he hugs and kisses his son, but you kind of get the idea reading between the lines. It's, it's perfunctory, you know, it's going through the motions. And so Absalom is living in Jerusalem, but he's, he's not really reconciled with his dad. And that is a, that is a real um, picture of the heart. You can sometimes go through the motions, but your heart's not in it. So, Brother Harper mentioned last night, Absalom would hang out at the gate of the city. That's where transactions occurred. He was a judge. And the people would come and they'd have their gripes. And he said, oh, that I were judge in Israel or king in Israel. This is what I would do. And the scripture says it this way, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And so the time came when, you know, just like so many of these political power-hungry people, he maneuvers his way into position. And the coup is committed. And David ends up fleeing from Jerusalem for his life. And Absalom is coming to take power. Now, what do we learn about Ahithophel here? Who is this guy? Again, I'm, I'm like a lot of you right now. I'm thinking, Ahithophel, okay, I've read through my Bible. I know that. I've heard that name, but I don't know anything about him. Well, the first thing we learn here, he was David's counselor. See that in verse 12? Counselor to David. So he was trusted advisor. In fact, the best way I can liken it to you would be presidents nowadays have their cabinet members. Okay, and <laughs> this present one, he's got a doozy of cabinet members. Uh, Mayorkas, and oh boy, I don't even want to go off of this, okay? But they, they've got their cabinet members. They are their trusted advisors, okay? And so David's got council members, cabinet members. Well, Ahithophel was a dear friend to him. And he was the guy, whatever counsel he gave, it was gold. It was, it was treated as if it were the word of God, not, not that it was inspired, but that's how trusted this man was. So he was a counselor to David, but drop down to verse 30, if you will, in the same chapter. David went up, from, uh, went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olivet and wept as he went up. He had his head covered. That's a sign of grief. He went barefoot. You know, most kings didn't go traipsing around barefoot. Now he's grief-torn here. All the people that were with him covered every man his head. They went up, weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, and again, I circled this name, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. 
came to pass when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat rent earth upon his head, whom David said, If thou passest on with me, thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou shalt return to the city, you say to Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so I will now also be thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. Hast thou not here with thee Zadok and Abiathar, the priest? Therefore, if they shall, therefore it shall be what thing soever they shall hear out of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimez, Zadok's son, Jonathan, Abiathar's son. By them ye shall send to me everything that ye hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. All right, what do we learn about Ahithophel here? Not only was he counselor to David, he was conspirator against David. Conspirator against David. He had been trusted advisor. He becomes turncoat adversary. Can you think of anybody in American history that was a traitor? Why don't most Americans name their kids Benedict? Who do you think of? Benedict Arnold. Why don't most, um, why don't most Christian families name their kids Judas? Who do you think of? Judas Iscariot. Why don't most Americans name their kids Ahithophel? Too many syllables. Uh, <laughs> Ahithophel was a traitor to David. Now, he had been his most trusted advisor, but he turned on him. Okay, so he's a, he's a conspirator against David. Now, it's interesting. Don't let all these names make you lazy in mind. Some people are like, Ahithophel, Hushai, da, la, la, la. Look, some of you have read creative writing, you know, novels and whatever. The way a lot of novels work nowadays, and I don't read a ton of them, but once in a while I've read a novel where you'll get 10 pages in and you'll have all these characters in one scene. Then the next chapter, they jump to a totally set of different characters, totally different scene. Then the third chapter comes, totally different set of characters, totally different scene. And then later on, they all merge and you kind of see how it'll go. And you'll put up with that in fiction writing. Don't get lazy in the Bible, okay? So we got Hethfel, we got Hushai, so many names. I know, okay? But they're all going to tie in. Now, who's Hushai? He's loyal to David, and he comes, David's fleeing, the coup is underway, and he comes out and he says, David, I want to go with you. Hushai, look, you go with me, you're just another mouth to feed, you're somebody else to worry about, you really want to help me? Yes, sir, I want to help you. Then go offer your services to Absalom. What? (laughs) He's the problem. Yeah, I need ears in the palace. I got to know what Ahithophel's telling Absalom. So, look, the priests are there, they're loyal to me. They'll overhear what's being said, they'll get word to their sons, and their sons can bring word to me. But you got to be in that council. Okay, so you know what he is? He's a spy. This is espionage. Anybody tells you the Bible's boring has not spent much time in the Bible, right? <laughs> so that's who was Ahithophel. Now let's go to chapter 16, and that brings us to number two. What did Ahithophel advise? What did he advise? Chapter 16, go down to verse 20, if you will. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into thy father's concubines, which he hath left to keep the house. All Israel shall hear, hear that thou art a port of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Now, that doesn't mean it was wholesome. It doesn't mean it was godly, but it just means it was authoritative. If he said it, they were doing it. What did he advise? You know what a concubine was? It's not part of our culture, thankfully, although it will be soon if these guys have their way. But 
Concubines were kind of a secondary wife. A king would have a harem. He shouldn't. In Deuteronomy 17 forbade the king from having more than one wife. But so many of them, even David did, right? They had lots of them. Well, a concubine was someone who was legally, if you will, married to the king, but her child would not be an heir to the throne. She would not inherit the king's wealth. So she's part of the harem, secondary wife. What did Ahithophel say? Here's what you do, Absalom. You pitch a tent up on the veranda of the palace, and people from town will be looking up like, what's going on up there? And every night you go in and you commit adultery with one of David's concubines. What? See, again, God doesn't gloss over the ugliness of human sin. It's amazing that he deals so patiently with us. So here's, what's the, what's the counsel? Well, first of all, adultery with David's wives. Adultery with David's wives. I mean, what could show more disregard, disdain for someone? Well, it gets worse. Go to chapter 17, the next verse where we left off. Chapter 17, verse 1, and uh, 1 to 4, you'll see some more here. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me now choose out 12,000 men. I'll arise and pursue after David this night. I'll come upon him while he's weary and weak-handed. I'll make him afraid, and all the people that are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only. And I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest is, is have all returned. So all the people shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well and all the elders of Israel. Do you know what he just said? Just give me 12,000 men. I'll personally be the hitman. I'll go after David myself. And I will, I'll smite him. I'll kill him. So he not only advises adultery with David's wives, but also assassination of David's life assassination of David's life. Goodness, with friends like that, who needs ISIS? Wow. Some of you think you might have had a friend who turned on you at some point in your life. How about this? So that's what he advised. This thing's snowballing. The, the coup is getting stronger. You think, well, what's, what's going to stem the tide? By the way, you, you know how David prayed, bring the counsel of Ahithophel to naught? That, that is how I pray for a lot of government officials. Lord, just please, just let the thing blow up their agenda. I mean, look, here's my beef. We've got an administration that is hell-bent on turning us into a Marxist society. That's my beef with what's going on. This is not political. This is, the, this is the well-being of our country. So I am praying all the time, Lord, please bring the counsel of Nancy Pelosi to foolishness. And then I think, she's already doing a good job herself. But, you know... <laughs> I pray all the time that God will just bring the agenda crashing down. God says to pray for kings and all that in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. So there are plenty of areas where I'm praying, Lord, just please stop them in their tracks where they're trying to destroy our constitution, destroy our country. This is, this is more than just you know, freedom at stake here. Well, David's praying this. Lord, bring the counsel of, a, of a Ahithophel to, to naught. And how's God going to do that? Well, that number three question is how. How was Ahithophel brought down? How was Ahithophel brought down? So we'll pick up in verse 7, chapter 17, verse 7. Hushai said to Absalom, The counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. Now imagine, he's in the inner council. What do you think was the atmosphere of the room when he said that? <gasps> there must have been a collective gasp in the room. <laughs> Nobody ever tried to do one up on Ahithophel. Verse 8, For, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, 
They'd be mighty men. What are mighty men? They're the special forces guys. They'd be chafed in their minds as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war. He'll not lodge with the people. Behold, he's now hid in some pit or some other place. And it'll come to pass, when some of them be overthrown at the first, that whosoever heareth it will say, There's a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. And he also that is valiant, whose heart is as the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man. They which be with him are valiant men. Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee, from Dan even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that thou go to battle in thine own person. So shall we come upon him in some place where he shall be found. We will light upon him as dew falleth upon the ground. And of him and of all the men that are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he be gotten to a city, then shall all Israel bring ropes to that city, and we'll draw it into the river until there be not one small stone found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. How was Ahithophel brought down? Well, A, superior counsel. And this had never happened. But you know what? Hushai was smart. How was he that smart? Well, how do you think he got that smart? God. If any man lacked wisdom, let him do what? Ask of God, James 1.5. So Hushai says, no, you know, you underestimate your father, Absalom. He's no regular soldier. He's a man of war. He's a mighty man, one of the special forces. He's not camped out among his people because if an attack occurred, well, he'd be slaughtered with everybody else. No, he's off in some pit or a cave or somewhere separated. And if you attack, all the men will rally to the death to fight for David. No, you better not take 12,000 men. You better get the whole army, and you better go after him yourself. Now, you know what Hushai is doing? He's trying to buy time here. And so he says to the priest, okay, here's what's happened. They're ready to attack David. You've got to get word to the king. This is imminent. You, you, we need action. So he's brought down by superior counsel, but then I want you to see one more observation. And it's uh, chapter 17, verse 22. Let's slide down, 22. Then, arose Dave, uh, then David arose and all the people that were with him. They passed over Jordan by the morning light. There lacked not one of them that was not going over Jordan. So there's a night evacuation going on here. Verse 23, and when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass, arose, got him home to his house, to his city, put his household in order, and hanged himself, and died, and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. What? What just happened? Well, he was brought down by superior counsel, and B, self-termination, which is a clinical way of saying what? Suicide. He took his life. Whoa. Now, let me just say to you, since suicide is in the text, I want to talk about it here. I mentioned this to those of you in the prayer meeting. By the way, we had about 30 in the prayer meetings the other night. Thank you for all of you who took time to come. I know not all of you could, but I did address this in the prayer meeting the other night. But I want to tell you something. One of the huge fallouts from COVID has been rampant suicide among people your age. Why did Hushai, I'm sorry, why did Ahithophel end up taking his life? His self-esteem, his identity was tied up in his career and when somebody seemed to be better than he, he just ended it all. Like you think this year, why would, why would Tom Brady let his marriage fall apart? He's 45 years old. The man's been the greatest achievement in football. I mean, why is he still playing football? That's his identity. I'm not justifying what he's done. The man needs the Lord. But it's his identity. He's, he's just obsessed with football. 
He has a supermodel wife. Not now. No, because he football's his thing. Okay, I don't know what your thing is, but I want to tell you this. Your thing is not your identity. Your identity is the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you, folks, listen, don't be naive. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. And I mentioned this the other night. I have had dear pastor friends of whom I think very highly who have privately confided in me, Rich, it got so bad I seriously thought about taking my life. Seriously thought about um, Some of you, one of my favorite missionary biographies is Bless God and Take Courage. I saw one of you have it for, some of you have it for class. Adoniram Judson. Anybody read that yet? Well, I don't want to, a spoiler alert here, but there's one point when he's taken political prisoner and he is being treated so horribly, he seriously thinks about taking his life. He, he really wants to throw himself over a bridge and end it all. That's Adoniram Judson. If you've had thoughts of suicide, you are not alone. I've never had thoughts of suicide. I've had some pretty dark thoughts. I've had thoughts like, I am tired of this ministry, you know. And I love what I do. These are just times when Satan will attack you, okay? But I will tell you, if you've had thoughts of suicide, you're not alone. But let me tell you something. Those thoughts are not coming from you. Why do I say that? Uh, Ephesians 5.29 says, No man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it. And some of you are thinking... But you don't know because I've been thinking, I don't think I can go on. I just need to end it all. It's all first person. I know. But those thoughts are not originating with you. That's why the Bible says, bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that section, tear down strongholds. Satan will go after your mind and he'll try to get you to think that you're the one coming up with the idea of suicide. It is not coming from you. It's coming from the enemy of your soul. John 10.10 says, A thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Ahithophel is believing the lie that, well, now that I've been trumped by somebody else, somebody's got a better idea. There's no point to living. What a crazy notion. But he acted out that crazy notion. And man, suicide is terminal. You don't get a do-over. There's no mulligan after suicide. Okay, so we've answered some pretty powerful questions. You know, who was Ahithophel and what did he advise and how was he brought down? But boy, the nagging question. And, some, and, and again, Shetler's walking through this whole thing and I, it's not organized, there's no outline, but I am just hanging on every word. And of course, there's a nagging question that hasn't been answered. And what question am I thinking as all this is going on? Why? Yeah. Number four is why. Why was Ahithophel so hateful? So I'm into it at this point. If, if you're like me and I had no idea where this plane's going to land, I don't know where this is going, but I'm into it, man. I'm thinking, okay, this guy was so loyal to David and he turns on him and why? Shetler said, I want you to go, to he- uh, go ahead in the narrative with me and jump to chapter 23. 23. So 2 Samuel 23. And uh, look at verse 8 for just a minute to set it up here. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. From verse 8 down to verse 39, the rest of the chapter is a listing of David's mighty men, his special forces guys, okay? These are the uh, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, okay? These, these uh, Green Beret guys, these are, these are the fighting, the special guys, all right? Special fighters. Go to verse 34 for sake of time. Here are some of the men. Eliphalet, the son of Ahashbi, the son of the Maacathite. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. The Gilanite. Okay, we learn a new wrinkle here. Ahithophel, 
Same one, because it's the Gilanite. Remember, he was from Gilo. So I don't know if there are any other Ahithophels, but this is the same one, the one from Gilo. Ahithophel had a son named Eliam. And Eliam was one of David's mighty men. I saw that name and I said, Eliam. Well, that sounds familiar. So then Shetler said, let's go back to chapter 11 for a minute. Chapter 11. And he said, here's where things will start clearing up for you. Chapter 11, verse 1, it came to pass after the year was expired at the times when kings go forth to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still in Jerusalem. Came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed. He walked upon the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman washing herself. The woman was very beautiful to look upon. Let's just stop here. Would you all look up here for a minute? You all know where this is going, right? David didn't know where this was going. Okay? Soft choices can give birth to hard consequences. He, the kings normally would go forth to battle. He did not. Why? Was he deliberately looking for an opportunity with this woman? It doesn't seem so. But for whatever reason, he makes, an, he makes a decision to stay home. And maybe it's bothering him. I don't know why. You know, it would be conjecture on my part why. Maybe he can't sleep one night because the men are in battle. I don't know. But he gets up, and you get the idea. It must have been a bright night, moonlit night, because they didn't have streetlights and all like we do. So he's walking on the veranda, and he sees a woman washing herself. Well, okay, it's time to turn around and go back. But he doesn't. He gazes. Whoa. And then notice what he does. Verse 3, David sent inquired after the woman and said, It's not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers, took her. She came to him. He lay with her. She was purified from her uncleanness. She returned to her house. The woman conceived and sent and told David, said, I am with child. Wait a minute. So if Eliam is her dad, how is she related to Ahithophel? That's her grandfather. Ooh. When I was growing up, there used to be a radio personality on called Paul Harvey. Stand by for news. Paul Harvey had a great voice. And he not only would give the news, but often he would end with telling this elaborate story of somebody that you didn't know, but you actually knew who they were, but you didn't know it because he would use only first names. And he would tell these amazing tales of how they came from obscurity to prominence and influence, etc. And then when he got to the end, he'd say, and their name was, and he'd give the full name. And then he'd say, and now you know the rest of the story. Any of you adults in my era ever remember Paul Harvey? Okay. So this is a Paul Harvey moment. I'm reading this, and all of a sudden, my mind is racing. This is like one of those whodunits. Oh, he's her grandfather. I call the message, here's the title I didn't give you earlier, The Bonds of Bitterness. The Bonds of Bitterness. What happened is that Ahithophel was David's most trusted advisor, but you know, word spreads. You say, well, not too many people knew. It doesn't take too many people. Somebody's going to talk. And you know how it happened. David finds out, uh-oh, after the act of adultery, she's conceived a child. And Ahith, I'm sorry, her husband Uriah has been off at battle. So if he comes back like, hey, I've been at war for months, uh, not my child, an inquiry is going to lead right back to the king. So you know what he does? Hey, send her husband home. Give me a report. And he says, hey, take a furlough while you're home. Be with your wife. Like, we'll cover this up. 
Uriah is so loyal to him, he won't even go home. So then David gets him drunk. Isn't it incredible how one sin leads to another sin? And even in his drunk state, he won't go home to his wife. So then David makes a rash decision. He writes a letter, send it to Joab the general. He has Uriah carry the letter. No doubt sealed with the king's wax seal. But you know, Uriah didn't do one of those little peek like, oh, I'm going to be killed. I don't think I'm going back to battle. He didn't peek. I think he's carrying his death warrant. And Joab is told, put him in the hottest part of the battle. And Joab must be thinking, I don't know what this guy did. And then pull everybody back. And I mean, basically, it's, it's nothing but premeditated murder. But you've all heard the old adage. I mean, how many preachers have said it? But it is so powerful. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Man, is that true. And here's a man after God's own heart that goes from adultery to getting a man drunk, lying in deceit, and murder. And when Ahithophel comes, I'm sorry, when Joab comes back from battle, yeah, Uriah's dead, but now all of a sudden, wait, Uriah's wife is pregnant? He's been in battle. I'm the general. He's been in battle with me for months. And it's all figured out. Who would know better than David's inner counsel? Who would know better than Ahithophel? The amazing thing is, Ahithophel becomes destroyed through his bitterness, but you don't find the same result with a lion. We don't know anything about her dad after that point. It is interesting he's listed among the mighty men, But there's no evidence that his life was destroyed by bitterness. Listen, let me give you a summary here. You might jot down Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The context is live peaceably with all men. You know, some people are easy to get along with. And there's some people, they are downright jerks. They're hard to get along with. He says, live peaceably with all men. And there's some people, they'll do you harm. I have the story of Corey Ten Boom here in my Bible. Boy, you talk about a woman who could have been bitter. It's called, I'm Still Learning to Forgive. It was in a church in Munich when I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the brown coat and the, over, uh, the brown hat and the overcoat, and the next moment a blue uniform with a visored cap and its, with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me her ribs sharp beneath a parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, Ravensbrück, the concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you said, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had seen One of my captives, my captors rather, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, he said, but since that time, I've become a Christian. I know God's forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips. Fräulein, again, the hand came out. 
Will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. How could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who've injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function, this is good, the will can function regardless the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You simply must supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried. With all my heart, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You might write down Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all guile. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. They don't deserve it. (laughs) Nope, and I didn't either. You don't know what they've done to me. You know... Sometimes we preach messages, and and it's about areas that we know are right, but we don't have any personal experience in that. Not so in this case. There have been some really deep times of trial in my own life that I, 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 I saw. Always comes out this way. When you go through a deep trial, you'll either come out bitter or better. Deep trials, you'll either come out bitter or better. I saw the opportunity to just get bitter and disenfranchised and disillusioned. The first that stands poignantly in my mind, I was in, um, I I joined Eagle Heights Baptist Church in 1994. I was ordained at Eagle Heights, sent out from there. I had been there six years, seven years when um, our church went through a terrible tragedy. I was preaching in uh, West Virginia, spent the night in Tennessee, was on my way to join Tom Farrell in uh, November of 2000 for some special meetings in Macon, Georgia, and I was going to be learning, observing. And as I spent the night in Tennessee, uh, we got a call that there had been a murder-suicide at my home church. Actually, at first, we only knew a murder at our home church. We found out that our, our pastor's wife shot and killed their youngest daughter and then turned the pistol on herself and took her own life. I don't remember the class in college to teach you how to deal with murder-suicide in your own parsonage. I was floored. I remember when I heard the news, I just fell back on the couch in our trailer. What? Rumors were flying, and in, in all the chaos, nobody had thought to call us. Evangelist Ron DeGard was about to marry a girl from our home church, and 
So he heard the gunshots, and he went up and got our pastor. Our pastor had been a former Kansas City policeman, and they went in the house, and there was the wife and daughter dead in a pool of blood. Whew. Canceled the plans to be in Macon, Georgia. I'm heading immediately back to Kansas City, and I'm getting phone calls along the way. Rich, how are you doing? You know, how do you answer that? Oh, we're fine. No. Well, I, I don't know. I'm thinking about giving up on God. Well, no, that wasn't true either. I just didn't know. I could hardly think. I remember saying this. Well, I, I don't know if I can process the emotions right now, but I will tell you this. I can, I can say I've gone through waves of weeping and just mind numbness as I'm driving, but I can tell you this. I am sustained. Psalm 55, 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord. He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. I'll come back to that story in a minute. That, that scripture would come back to us repeatedly. Um, three years later, 2003, our assistant pastor and wife lost a uh, home in a tornado. And I remember just bawling when I heard that. But you know, ironically, uh, two weeks before that, my wife and I lost our third child. Um, 17 weeks into term, my wife had not been doing well. After the first trimester, she usually got better. She was not. We're now into the 17th week. She's too ill to travel. I'm up in Ohio preaching a meeting Easter Sunday week. My wife's staying with my parents. And she calls me and says, Honey, I don't, I, something's not right. I said, Andrew, you should go to the hospital. Rich, I don't want to just sit and triage. They, they, there's nothing obvious. I don't know. I just Something's not right. I said, Honey, I, I think we need to face the fact that we could lose this baby. She said, I know. And I said, Angela, listen, hon. If we lose the baby, you and I have got to resolve that no matter what happens, God's good. Baby lives, baby doesn't live. God's good. She said, I know. We got a midwife on the phone to talk to my wife. And as they were talking, my wife's water broke. She said, go to the hospital right now. What about my husband? I'll call your husband. The midwife calls me and says, Mr. Tozer, I, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but your wife's water just broke. She's on the way to the hospital. I said, man, my mind's racing right now. I, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't know if I'm thinking clearly, but 17 weeks, is there a chance this baby will live? She said, I'm sorry. I'm, I am good with this. I have processed this so well over time, but I'm, I'm just reliving this for the moment, okay? I'll be all right. It was the only boy we would have. We, did, we never knew what we were going to have until the child was delivered. I'd always wanted a Richard III. I'm a Richard Jr. And I always thought, man, I, Richard III, we'll call him Trey. I could never hit the Trey. And so, you know, the three-point shot. So I'll call him Trey. Well, we didn't, we didn't have a Trey. We named that little guy Nathaniel because an Israelite in whom is no guile. And I couldn't get home for that, that night. I worked all night to try to get a plane to be there with my wife. And I'll remember the next day I, I arrived home. And I, am I okay on overtime here? I'm sorry. I remember I got there the next day, and we just, we hugged and we cried. But you know what? After that, I was good. It's rare that I get choked up like this, telling this story, because I really am good about it, because that kid's with the Lord. And I don't know what that relationship will be like one day, but that's going to be amazing. I rarely ever cried about that. Now, my pastor lost his house, or assistant pastor, I bawled. Here's a, here's a powerful reminder. You get grace for your trial. You don't get grace for the other guy's trial. Don't take up offense for somebody who's going through a trial. That'll ruin you. Um, that was in 2003. 
2008. My dad was up here in Mooresville, you know, an hour from here, working with my sisters on a project, and my dad, at 65 years old, experienced, we think, a blocked bow and died suddenly, 65 years old. 2012, my wife's youngest sister, Sonia, um, passes away of breast cancer at age 34. Now, I'm not telling you all this to make you feel pity for me. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this. Most everybody I know in ministry has been through some type of heart-rending loss. Well, then I'm not going to the ministry. Well, that's exactly what Satan wants. But you remember when Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And here's what happens is you'll never have empathy with people until you've walked in their shoes. Now, I haven't been through everybody's personal loss, but I've been through some personal loss, and I'll tell you, nothing gives, and my spiritual gifts profit, black and white, thus saith the Lord, but I'll tell you what, you learn to empathize with people through the trials of life. I want to end in Psalm 55, because I mentioned um, he shall sustain me. Let's go there, Psalm 55. Look at verse 22. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain me. You know, bitterness, um, somebody asked Johnny Erickson Tata one time, Johnny, you know, God allowed your paralysis, you think you know the story, paralyzed from the neck down. As a girl, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay off a dock, snapped her spinal cord, paralyzed from neck down. She paints with her teeth. One of the most joyful people you'll ever hear on, the new, on, the, on Christian broadcast. I mean, joyful, joyful, paralyzed, right? Somebody said, Johnny, were you ever tempted to be bitter at God? She said this, you know, being bitter is like drinking poison yourself, expecting the other person to die. <laughs> That's well said. Being bitter is like drinking poison yourself, expecting the other person to die. Somebody also said, bitterness is the only poison that destroys its own container. Bitterness is the only poison that destroys its own container. It'll destroy you. I'm going to tell you something. Satan will not get many of you. He could, but he will not get many of you with drugs, immorality, agnosticism. But you know where he'd love to get you? Disillusionment bitterness, and a failure of faith. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you. That's y'all, plural, or you guys where I grew up. He desired to have you, disciples. But I've prayed for thee individually. I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Simon never lost his faith, even though he cussed and swore and denied the Lord. But boy, he went through a crisis, didn't he? Satan will try to wreck your faith. So second, I'm sorry, Psalm 55, 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain thee. I, I took three years of piano lessons, and it was a total waste of my parents' money, I'm sorry to say. I love music. I, would lo- I love hearing quartets. I love hearing groups. I, I love the piano. I wish I could play. I can't. So I took three years of piano lessons, could never learn to read music, and I was, a, I was an A student in school. I didn't struggle academically, but... You who can take these squiggly lines and make sense of that, good for you. I, I can't. So I do know this. I know this is middle C. I know that. Three years of piano lessons, I got that down, right? <laughs> I also know that this, uh, I'm tall, i got to look down here. This pedal to the far right is called the sustain pedal. Why don't you listen to this? That's middle C. And that's middle C with a sustain pedal.
Here's one of the best Hebrew lessons I can give you. What does sustain mean? He'll carry you through. He'll sustain you. He'll enable you to go on when you don't feel like you can go on anymore. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain you. It's very interesting. When people were calling and asking after the murder or suicide, how are you doing? I said, well, I, I, I can honestly say we are sustained. You know what I didn't know at the time? Go back to verse 12. It was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither it was he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, my equal, my guide, my guide, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, walked to the house of God in company. Look at verse 17. Evening, morning, and noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my prayer. Verse 21. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. All of David's psalms were written in context of some event. Many believe that this was written in the context of Ahithophel. It sure would square with the text. My guide, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, but then he turned on me. And what was David's response to that? Man, that was a good message last night. I didn't know that about Psalm 23. That was a great message. Circumstances didn't change. His perspective changed. And his remedy here, cast thy burden upon the Lord. He'll sustain thee. I didn't really want to land on a heavy message like this this week, but you know, you know why I ended up landing here? The one area you're probably susceptible will be the attack on your faith. It won't be an intellectual attack. It's going to be attack in the matter of trial. If God's good, how could he let this happen to my uncle, my mom, my sister, me? Folks, God's good no matter what. Don't let the perplexities of human life cause you to doubt God. I can tell you this, and I named four different trials we've been through. I could give you more, but I'll tell you this. I love the Lord more than I ever have. And I trust him more than I ever have. And I understand him more than I ever did. And I will tell you, God is still an enigma to me. But I can't imagine it any other way. He is the most high. Is it confounding that I could not get God? No, it's comforting. Because he's got it.